to have a hard copy. All right, the book of Esther. If you find the book of Psalms and then go back to uh, Job, and then you can go back again to Esther. Sometimes Esther is a little bit uh, harder book to find in, in the Bible, uh, but there are just a couple books before the book of Psalms. Esther is one of only two Old Testament books that uh, is named after a woman, and only one of two books in the Bible that does not mention the name of God. Nevertheless, we see God's handprint and fingerprint all throughout the book of Esther. And obviously it is a book of uh, God's providence and God's sovereignty and God's preservation of the nation of Israel. So in our uh, series on Bible characters, we are going to take at least uh, this week and probably next as well to look at Esther. I did not uh, make a title slide, and so we will go right into the outline, and we will look at her heritage a little bit tonight, her heritage. And the person that we know as Esther, uh, there is not a lot of biographical information, but there's enough that we can gather uh, from some of the uh, historical records and then also from several of the references in the book of Esther. Only 10 chapters, not a long book, but we see, again, God's providence, and we see God using a young lady in a unique way in a time of a world empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, with a pagan king with a animosity between Haman, who was an Agagite, and if you know anything about Israel's history, Haman was a descendant of King Agag. King Ahag was king of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were commanded by God to King Saul for him to completely eradicate, completely remove. They had been very antagonistic toward Israel. They had even attacked Israel unprovoked. They had been cruel to Israel, and God commanded Saul to go and to destroy all of the Amalekites. But he kept Agag, and remember, Saul disobeyed in not only keeping Agag, but some of the best of the sheep and the oxen for sacrifices. And then Samuel told Saul it's better to obey uh, than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And we know that uh, passage well. Well, Haman, one of the key players, key people in the book of Esther, was an Agagite, a descendant of King Agag, and he still had a prejudice and a hatred for the Jews. Haman, of course, plays a key role in the book of Esther as the one who helped raise Esther and her cousin, and Haman hated Mordecai, because Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. Haman was that conceited, narcissistic, arrogant kind of politician that we all love to despise, <laughs> that we all love to hate. And Haman obviously had deceived the king into destroying the Jews. But God, in all of that, providentially had Esther in the right place for such a time as this. So this is a little bit about the history. Who is this king? 
Verse number one, now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over an hundred and seven and twenty provinces, that in those days when the king Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces, being before him. This was a big feast. And from what we understand, this king is the king known as Xerxes. X-E-R-X-E-S. I don't have blanks in the outline, but if you're following the outline, I'll have some of these points. Uh, but I did not leave a place for you to fill in any blanks. And uh, just in, in the, my, my time today, I did not get all those deleted and put the, the lines in there, but uh, still, if you'd like to follow the outline in the, uh, next to the prayer list, uh, you can do so. But the background here is this is the Medo-Persian Empire, and the historical record matches up accurately. Obviously, the Bible being a historical book, though it's not a history book, it has a lot of history. We often refer to it in, in some terms, as a historical book. And again, if I can just speak to the inspiration and to the authority of God's Word, the Bible is unique in that it records events in history, certain specific events, according to God's sovereignty and His providence and by His inspiration. And this is one of those events in history that is recorded, and we don't have all of the background, all the details. But there have been enough archaeological discoveries, enough people who love history, hint, hint, love history. It's a good thing to love history. And they have gone back and they have figured out that the king, Ahasuerus, is Xerxes. Ahasuerus would be a title. It would be, again, like a Herod. It's not unusual. Even Pharaoh is a title. It is not unusual for a lot of these ancient civilizations to have titles for their kings, their dictators, for their leaders. We often think of president or prime minister. Well, Herod was a title. Pharaoh was a title. Ahasuerus was a title. And Xerxes is the king that Esther would uh, be uh, his queen to Xerxes. So this feast... The historical record even puts this feast as probably a feast right after Ahasuerus, Xerxes, was defeated by the Greeks. So let's continue in our little history lesson here. We are now post the destruction of Jerusalem. We had in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar coming in, taking Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. 597, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Palestine and he does some more pillaging. He does some more raids. And he takes probably at that point Esther, Mordecai, and another group of Jews and takes them to Babylon. But now the Babylonian Empire has come and gone and there is now the Medo-Persian Empire. So you've got Cyrus, and then you've got uh, Darius, and then you have Xerxes. 
So Xerxes is the son of Darius. And Darius, we have recognized him in the Bible and his relationship with Daniel. So now we're at Esther and Mordecai. This is probably in the time frame now, probably in the time frame between the first return of the Jews to the, to the promised land. So remember, Cyrus was the Medo-Persian emperor who declared and allowed, he made the statement, made the declaration, allowing the Jews to return to Palestine. That first group was Zerubbabel, and that group was five, around 538 B.C. So around 538 B.C., Zerubbabel goes back to Palestine with a group of Jews, but a lot of Jews still remained in Babylon, now under the control of the Medo-Persian Empire, and Xerxes is now the king. So between the first return and the second return, the second return was under Ezra around 458 B.C. Nehemiah would be around 445 B.C. in the building of the walls. Between the first and second returns is probably when this event, this account, this event, and the accounts of this event that takes place is probably between the first and the second returns. So, let's put all this into, into, our, into our minds and into the historical uh, background and context. Why have Mordecai and Esther not gone back to Palestine? We don't know. That is one of the criticisms that will come, is why have Esther and Mordecai not returned? There's already been one group. There will be a second group later, and then eventually Nehemiah and some more. I don't, want the, I don't want that to become a major negative because we know how it is when it comes to moving, when it comes to leaving, when it comes to traveling. You can get a group at one time and then you can get a second group and then you can get a third group. And in those days, the travel was not airplanes and comfortable cars with dual climate control and 50 miles a gallon and leather seats and all that. We're talking about foot camel, horseback. So after the Babylonian Empire and now the Medo-Persian Empire, there was a comfort level among some of the Jews in, Palestine, or excuse me, in, in Babylon, in what is now modern-day Iraq. So some of it was just you can only get so many people at a time to travel for various reasons. Sometimes, some of it was, yes, a comfort level, but we know that in God's providence, there would be this Haman who would want to destroy the Jews. And so in all of this historical, all these players, all these emperors, all of these groups, God is sovereignly, providentially working to have Esther in the place. So when Haman deceives Xerxes to give the decree to destroy the Jews. God has Esther, God has Mordecai there to be able to thwart Satan's plan to harm the Jews, to destroy the Jews, to harm God's people. Okay, so Esther it comes on the scene having probably been taken, probably as a child, from Palestine around 597 B.C., 
We know she was from the tribe of Benjamin, Esther chapter number 2, in verse number 5. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. That was around 597 B.C. And he brought up, verse number 7 of Esther 2, and he brought up Hadassah. Hadassah, that is Esther. Okay, So Hadassah is her Hebrew name, which means myrtle. Myrtle is a flowering plant, an evergreen flowering plant uh, that had uh, specific uh, purposes and uses, a beautiful plant, uh, a beautiful flower, and that was her Hebrew name. But her Persian name was Esther. So when the Persian Empire took over from Babylon, they gave her the name Esther, as would be customary. Why would pagan kings, why would these foreign nations, when they captured, when they conquered a group of people, why would they change their names? Why would Daniel have the name Belteshazzar? And why do we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Why do we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And I have forgotten their Hebrew names. Uh, Hank, go ahead. Yes, yes, it's a brainwashing activity. It is a brainwashing activity. It's that whole, do we not see that still today in some, in some ways with liberalism and neo-orthodoxy and progressive Christianity and just the way Satan works, he deceives. And one of the ways he deceives is he tries to change definitions and he tries to change terms. Well, part of what the pagans would do in these conquests is they would change the names as a brainwashing so, so they could remove your former identity. You could, they could remove your history, remove your background, and separate you from your ancestry and from your heritage. So that was all part of their plan in brainwashing them. So we know that Esther's name is a Persian name. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and it means myrtle. So we continue in our understanding of Esther's background. We understand from verse number 7 of Esther 2, For she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So somewhere in the conquest and the captivity, her parents die. More likely they were uh, murdered or somehow they were uh, killed in the conquest, or it's possible they made it to Babylon and then died there in, uh, the, under the Babylonian or the Medo-Persian Empire rule. So now she's an orphan. Mordecai takes her under his wings, and he basically raises her as her adoptive father, though he is her cousin. Okay, So a lot going on here, a lot of historical background and context to give us an idea of what's going on. Can I make, can I make note of the fact that the Bible referenced her as a maid that was fair and beautiful. Okay? Don't want to make too much of this, but it is okay 
for us to recognize beauty of appearance. It's not that beauty is everything. It's not that beauty is the, or handsomeness, is equal with character. Because we know very well that there are a lot of handsome, a lot of beautiful people who do not have beautiful character, that do not have handsome character. But it is okay to recognize beauty. Was David not referred to as a handsome young man? Uh, I think the term uh, was ruddy. Uh, He was a very handsome young man. He was a a man who had been obviously a shepherd and had probably the, the tan and the physique that went with being a shepherd. Let me, let me, again, pause here for a minute. Let's think about this. Is our world, is our culture not even trying to change the standards of beauty? I'm, again, it, God looks at the heart. Character is not measured by outward appearance. We make way too much of outward appearance. But when certain Popular people are actually recommending unhealthy lifestyles and recommending certain kinds of things that we have understood as not being healthy or in some cases downright ugly. And then if you want to call them the liberals or progressives or whatever you want to call them are now trying to redefine those terms and calling that beautiful. Can I just go ahead and say that a lot of that is trying to sexualize everything and to pervert everything and to disorder everything that God has designed, that God has ordered, that God has created? Do we not see the subtle way in which Satan is trying to turn everything so that evil is called good. We see it in so many different ways, and it's a subtle attempt. I don't want that to be misunderstood. But it's okay for us to recognize beauty, handsomeness. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we make that the all in all, the standard by which we judge. But it's okay to recognize that but we don't obviously pervert that and turn that into something that God does not intend. I hope that makes sense, and I hope I didn't confuse anybody uh, with that. But that is something that will be an important part of Esther's life, because she was blessed with beauty, which was to her advantage. But we'll spend some more time on that, uh, Lord willing, next week. What did Esther have to do? She had to learn the role of a queen in a pagan kingdom. Isn't that interesting? Now we can talk about some of the compromise or whatever that may have been going on there, but she had to learn the role of a queen in a pagan empire. And who was her instructor? Was it some beauty queen? Was it some insta-influencer? Was it some lady, you know how it is on these Instagram now, on these social media posts now, you've got these ladies now who they are doing their makeup and they have step-by-step. Any of you guys watch 
some of the. <laughs> but every once in a while, you'll see, and there'll be a lady, and she'll be she'll be doing her her makeup, and she's showing step by step. Esther didn't have; she had a eunuch teaching her. Okay, we understand. A pagan king wanted no threat, and he wanted to make sure that the men who were in charge of the remember this is a pagan society. The women were going to be the subservient people. And it was going to be the men who were going to be in charge. And they were going to make sure those women were taught the right way to submit to the king and to the men. Well, what king is going to put men in charge of the women and not have some things put in place to keep him from, keep those servant men from having a relationship with those ladies. So he made them eunuchs. Okay? I don't need to go any further with that. But the point is, she had to learn from a eunuch, a man, how to be a queen for a pagan king. Isn't that an interesting way in which the pagans made sure that the king, the emperor, was in charge? And no one was going to threaten him, and that queen was going to be exactly the way... How did all that change? We'll talk about this some more on Sunday morning as we continue in our perspectives of the cross. I only, I only got to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and there are three other women at the cross that we'll talk about. But the role of women in the Bible, I, I, don't, even, I don't even have time. I'll have to talk about it maybe Sunday morning or next, next Wednesday. But the role of women in the church, it's still a controversial topic. The role of women in society now there's a new term out there, trad wives. Okay? It's interesting. What is Satan continuing to do? Continuing to attack the family. Continuing to attack husband and wife, male and female, mom and dad. The attack continues. It's Christianity that changed the world for the good that made very clear the creation mandate and the distinctions and the way in which God made men and women, male and female, boys and girls, made them distinct and complementary and equal before God as being made in the image of God and having dignity. This pagan emperor did not have any true, genuine, loving respect for the queen, for the women that he had these men in charge of. As a matter of fact, Esther was going to join the harem of the king. This was not a particularly good role for a woman to be in. But we see God providentially overruling and using Esther, and we'll have to talk about this some more later, but I want us to understand that it is God and His Word that declared very clearly the creation mandate and the distinction, and it's the paganism and the progressivism and the liberalism and whatever we want to call it that is distorting and perverting God's perfect creation and design for men and women, for moms and dads, for male and female. And uh, we can see even in this early uh, beginning of 
this account of Esther, we can see the way the pagan kings were treating women. And it was the word of God, it was Christianity that changed all of that. And uh, we'll get into that some more later. But I hope this has been at least a little bit of an introduction and a background and help to us. And we'll, Lord willing, finish or continue at least next Wednesday night in the life of Esther. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our church family. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the lessons we can learn from the life of Esther. Thank you for your providential care and concern and uh, leading, uh, even overruling where Satan thought he could rule. And, uh, Lord, directing uh, where Satan thought he could upset God's, uh, your perfect design and your order and your plan. We thank you, Lord, for your care for us, your care for your people. And, uh, Lord, so much we can learn from the life of Esther and from this account that you have given to us. And we thank you for it. Pray continue to help the Rumbas and the Baylors. Continue, Lord, to give them your grace and peace and comfort. Guide and direct in our lives throughout the rest of the week. Pray you'll bring us back together safely again on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you for being here tonight.